Hello, podcast listeners. We have three exciting changes to share with you. First is that we're moving to Monday. This will kickstart your week with game-changing pharmacotherapy topics and hopefully make it easier to listen in. Our first Monday episode will start on October 18th. Second, claiming CE credit is even easier than before. If you are a pharmacist, there is one membership for CE, and this is podcast included. Once you activate your membership, you can get CE credit for just listening in each week. You simply click on the link in the show notes of each episode and claim your CE. If you don't have a membership yet, there is a link in the show notes to sign up. It's super easy. And last but not least, you'll notice a few naming changes. Starting in mid-October, the podcast show will be changed to CE Impact. You'll still get new Game Changers episodes every Monday, and now you'll also get the Preceptive Practice and Level Up Pharmacy Practice episodes, which makes it super easy to get new content. You don't have to do anything else if you already follow the podcast, but watch for the show name to change. For more information, check out the What's New section of the show notes. Welcome again to another episode of Game Changers Clinical Conversations. I am your host, Jeff Wall, Professor of Pharmacy Practice at Drake University. Hello and welcome. Hope everything is going okay in your world. And hopefully the two words you don't have to hear on a regular basis is a Delta variant, because I think uh, we're all getting tired of that. those two words. The good news is that while we are talking about an infectious disease topic today, it is thank the gods, not about COVID. Hopefully our COVID podcasts are going to decrease in number as time goes on. I think that's what we're all hoping for. Again, thank you for listening. If you get a chance, head over to wherever you get your podcast, hit that like button, uh, subscribe to us if you haven't had a chance to, but most importantly, head to our producer, ceimpact.com. They have tons and tons of great CE programs for prescribers as well as pharmacists. So they have CME as well as CE, and it's all very affordable. Also feel free to join the pharmacist network, which is TPN. And what TPN means is always a little something different in my hospital pharmacy world, but it's a great online community where it's kind of taken the best pieces of LinkedIn and a CE program and brought them together. And, and I think it works really quite nicely. You can actually get CE for listening to this program at a very affordable rate. Again, if you just head over to CE Impact. So, so as I said today, we are going to be talking about infectious diseases, but not COVID. We're actually talking about a very interesting paper that was published just in the last couple of months in JAMA Internal Medicine. And it took a look at a very important topic that unfortunately I don't think has gotten a lot of research, which is outpatient antimicrobial stewardship. And since the people who tend to to prescribe these drugs are primary care physicians, I am honored to have my old friend, Dr. John Yost joining me. Welcome, John. Good morning, Jeff. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. Well, I really appreciate that, John. John and I are old friends. John is actually one of the uh, internal medicine physicians I admire most. I've worked with him for many, many years. He is an outstanding physician, an outstanding educator, and he's actually chief academic officer, Unity Point, but also maintains a practice at Broadlawns and seeing patients. So this is definitely something that's in his wheelhouse, and we really appreciate his experience talking about this paper. So the paper itself is a paper that came out of Canada, and as I mentioned, was published just a couple of months ago in uh, JAM Internal Medicine. Uh, it, one of the things it talks about, and I think something we're all pretty aware of, is that if we can get COVID out of our head for just a few minutes, thinking about the fact that we still had another infectious disease crisis before COVID, it was just a little bit more slow moving, and that was the crisis of increasing antimicrobial resistance. And we know that some of the big drivers to that are, of course, overuse of antibiotics, particularly in the outpatient setting and in the farm setting. And so we know those are two of the big places where a lot of, of antibiotics are given, and we know that significantly selects out or resistance 
and organisms. Now, in the last 15 years, yeah, we've come up with some new types of, of antibiotics where we've really just kind of grafted on, you know, mostly existing beta-lactam drugs to these super-duper beta-lactamase inhibitors. But, you know, that's kind of a stopgap measure. It is very soon that the bugs will become resistant to them as well. So this is definitely a, a problem like so many problems that if we can prevent the problem rather than having to deal with it, we're probably all for the better on this. And so that's really the, the basis of antimicrobial stewardship. And the antimicrobial stewardship now for over 15 years has been recognized as an integral part of making sure that antimicrobials are used appropriately. And, and these programs are actually designed to promote the rational use of antibiotics. The Infectious Disease Society of America and the Joint Commission both recommend that a program is in place for in any hospital that helps prescribers utilize antimicrobials most effectively and most judiciously. And so that's something that's been going on now, I think, in most even relatively small hospitals for a long, long time. And the data is pretty clear that, especially in gigantic hospitals like academic medical centers, that these programs have been successful, that they have actually decreased not only gross tonnage of, of antibiotic shoes, but they've also found a decrease in resistance patterns. Some of the activities that these inpatient stewardship programs do will be, for example, prospective audit. They'll keep an eye when a new antibiotic is ordered. They'll take a look at, at cultures and give the prescriber a call and say, hey, you know, this is the ID group. This is kind of what we think. It's almost kind of like having a, a semi-free uh, uh, ID consult, it always seemed like to me. Uh, they'll do things like uh, report cards. They'll give report cards to, to different practices and say, you know, here's how you're doing. Here's how, how the national average is or how you're comparing to your peers. And that's always, I, I think, a pretty helpful thing to do. Uh, educational app programs, which I think at Unity Point, um, we, you know, we have great ID docs and they, they do a very good job of educating not just our, our trainees, but, but also our attendings about important animal stuff and other sorts of things as well. So antimicrobial stewardship is absolutely well established in the hospital, but as you might imagine, translating that in the community is just going to be much more difficult. And, and so many uh, large health systems have struggled to get stewardship programs up and running in an outpatient setting. And it makes sense. I mean, who's going to take ownership of that? I mean, and who's the person who kind of keep, keeps an eye out and kind of looks over the shoulder of some primary care physicians and saying, how are we doing with this sort of stuff? And so that's where this paper is interesting because they, in this paper, try a very simple intervention. So this study was done in uh, Canada, it was actually done in Ontario, and these investigators said, well, okay, well, instead of trying to do some sort of complex educational program or try to have some sort of way where we're going to restrict antibiotics or things along those lines, let's try something simple. And what the simple thing they tried was basically a letter and a report for lack of a better word. And what they did is they took a look at all the family physicians and general practitioners who practiced in Ontario, and they ranked them by highest to lowest lowest number on the basis of the antimicrobial prescriptions they prescribed between March 1st, 2017 and February 28th, 2018. And I'm pleased to see they did this before COVID because I think many people have, have suspected that antibiotic use has dramatically increased during the pandemic. They only included oral antibiotics that were directly dispensed by outpatient pharmacies. And then when they had this ranking, they basically took the 3,500 highest prescribing antibiotic prescribing PCPs of 12,888 practitioners. And they took a look at their administrative database and separated them out basically by the types of antibiotics they did, some of their demographic information, how long they've been out from training, things along those lines. And then they took the highest 25 percentile of that, of that group, and they basically just gave them a letter. They wrote them an actual, like, here's a letter with a stamp on it sort of thing. I, I know 
people don't tend to do that anymore, but yeah, people still do that. And that's the way they did this. And they divided their letters basically into three groups. They had one group where they basically gave them a letter saying, you know, hello, based on our research, you're in the top 25 percentile of people who initiate antibiotics. And they also gave them a, a chart of where they were. And they also gave a chart of common respiratory infections and when it is appropriate to prescribe antibiotics with them. Then the second group, they looked at duration. And so these were people who tended to prescribe antibiotics longer than five to seven days. And so they just literally gave them another letter and said, here's where you're at. Here's kind of what the recommendations say. It's, it is probably reasonable in many cases to pick a lower duration of therapy, et cetera, et cetera. And then the third uh, group, the control group, just didn't receive a letter at all. They did design these letters uh, with input from other family medicine physicians and the local medical society. So I, I think that uh, helped uptake of, of this information. I'm sure they were written as designed to not be condescending or insulting or anything along those lines. They just said, look, we just want to catch you up and let you know where you're at. And so since they had 3,500 enrolled PCPs, 1,500 were assigned to each intervention arm, and then 500 were the control group. The primary outcome was total antibiotic volume based on unique number of prescriptions. So not necessarily number of prescriptions, but literally number of pills or number of, of liquids. The total antibiotic volume based on unique prescriptions. Secondary outcomes were the number of prolonged duration antibiotic prescriptions designed as greater than seven days and total antibiotic costs. And, and here they, since this is socialized medicine, they were looking at strictly at drug acquisition costs. They weren't looking at the pharmacist fees or anything along those lines. They defined more than seven days as prolonged because uh, I, I think the evidence is pretty clear now that most community management infections can be managed effectively with seven days or less of antibiotic. So they had a gigantic a database that, that they pulled all this information from, and they stratified the results based on some of these baseline characteristics. So they took a look at differences in, pres in prescribing levels versus the year of medical education, how long they had been graduated and been out of school. They looked at, at gender, they looked at practice location, and then they, they had some combinations of, of these different things to see if they could tease out any certain group where this seemed to be particularly effective or ineffective. They did include interactions between subgroups variables and times, and uh, these uh, poison regression analysis to account for all the confounders that you're certainly going to have in this sort of complex analysis. So in the results, uh, they found actually in most cases, things were balanced pretty well between the three groups. Most of these physicians were more than 10 years out from training, uh, but less than, than, than 25 years out, so pretty much right in the, the prime years, if you will, of their practices. Two-thirds of them were male. These were mostly in urban settings. In fact, the vast majority of them were in Toronto and in the surrounding areas. And the median number of antibiotics prescribed in this high cohort, and remember, this isn't all Ontario primary care providers, this was the 25% high quartile of people who prescribed antibiotics, but the average median group in this per physician was 740, which I thought seemed high to me. <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I thought, you know, again, I realized that physicians see 20, 25 patients a day, but that would definitely mean prescribing multiple prescriptions every single day for your patients. And those. so these were, were obviously high prescribers. What was the outcome? And they actually did uh, find some good things. They found a statistically significant 8.1 relative difference in prolonged duration prescriptions between the people who got the duration arm and control. So in other words, they found that about 8.1% of prescriptions from that point on were within the seven-day mark compared to before it was done and compared to the control arm. They found that uh, receipt of the initiation letter, so the letter that said, hey, you know, maybe we don't need to start antibiotics and everybody, unfortunately did not have a statistically significant effect, but there was a statistically significant effect between the duration arm and the initiation arm 
on prolonged prescription. So it really seems like uh, when you kind of boil this down, that the reminder that the need for 10 to 14 days of antibiotics, and I think many of us were trained when we first got out of school, that's what you want to do. You really want to pound the bugs into the ground. A reminder to these prescribers that, well, maybe we don't have to do that anymore. Five to seven, that seemed to have a real good effect. Unfortunately, the, you know, hey, just because your patient's got a, a sniffle or a cough doesn't necessarily mean you need to see the send them home with a Z-pack. Unfortunately, that did not have as much of an effect and nothing that read statistical significance be, uh, between either the control arm or the duration arm. So, so then they kind of extrapolated things out and said, okay, well, this was the, you know, the highest quartile of highest PCPs in Ontario who received this duration letter. If they would have continued to do this and that you could extrapolate that out to all prescribers, their estimations is that, that in 12 months, there would be 147,000 fewer antibiotic prescriptions, which is 10 per thousand of the population. That's pretty impressive. 84,000 fewer antibiotic prescriptions of more than seven days duration, which would be six per thousand population, and a whopping $2.7 million, and I'm assuming this is Canadian dollars, reduction in drug cost, or about $193 per, per thousand population. So even a fairly meager decrease, I mean, this, you know, we're not talking 50% decrease or even 20% decrease, about 8% decrease in duration primarily, and just a smidge decrease in initiation wasn't enough to result in significant cost savings to projected cost savings to the Canadian healthcare system. So, and so they actually found their discussion was basically, yeah, that, you know, this wasn't as robust an intervention as they thought that that might be, yet it did have an effect and it did seem to have an enough of effect that gross tonnage of antibiotics seemed to go down some and certainly costs were saved in this ambulatory, in ambulatory settings compared to the control. So that's, that's kind of what they found in the study. They, of course, mentioned some of the limitations of the study and that they didn't get everybody and of course they didn't get buy-in from everybody and and things along those lines and and they also discussed that you know given their healthcare system this was a relatively easy intervention to do could we do this on in other countries is kind of a big question which is kind of where i'm going to be talking to john yost about his opinion welcome john yost and appreciate his thoughtful commentary so what did you think of the, of the paper john uh, good morning jeff and again uh Thanks for allowing me to participate in the conversation. Like you, I thought this was a really interesting paper. Um, some surprises in this paper, not many. Uh, this, as you said just a few moments ago, has been a longstanding problem inadequately addressed in the ambulatory setting. I've been practicing over 30 years and, and this has been a topic of conversation that's never been effectively addressed, at least in my opinion. And, and we continue to see it just a ton of inappropriate prescribing uh, in the outpatient setting, uh, often for viral infections, and then they're treated with antibiotics. What I found a little surprising about this paper, which in general I think was well-designed, I thought it was a nice, simple, clean design that really did ask and answer the question. Um, I guess my, my one surprise was that the number of prescriptions in this top quartile was as high as it was. Right. Uh, you know, if, if we're going to postulate that uh, the average generalist, let's say he or she sees patients 200, maybe 220 days a year, uh, when you subtract vacations and weekends, uh, could be more for some. And most are seen between 20 and 30 patients a day. You've got to pretty much prescribe at least four or five prescriptions for antibiotics every single day 
to achieve that top quartile. So that surprised me, but then I reminded myself, we're dealing with the top quartile here. Exactly. You know, this, yeah. this is the group that is going to be the outliers. By the way, I would love to know more about that 99th percentile that was removed. And I know there are only 15 or 16 in the two intervention arms and four or five in the control arm, but uh, I'd love to see how many prescriptions they have. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> probably just blow to, your mind. Yeah, yeah precisely. <laughs> and, and know just a little bit more about them as individuals. <laughs> but, you know, a well-designed study, the, the results didn't surprise me. I consider this to be a pretty low-intensity intervention. I mean, a single educational letter is, is uh, it, certainly, in my opinion, fairly low intensity. And so because we saw some trend toward reduction of prescriptions and a statistically significant reduction in those prescribing antibiotics for prolonged periods, I think it opens the door for us. I think that this suggests that with interventions of perhaps greater intensity, we could achieve greater results. Good. And so I, you know, I, I, that was kind of my, I'm, I'm glad I wasn't the only person who, when I, when I saw that, I was like, gee, that, I mean, and I, and you, you did back of the envelope calculations a lot more efficiently than I did. I just like, wow, 740 prescriptions. That just seemed like unbelievable amount of questions. But yeah, I'm, you know, you know, my next question would be here in, in Des Moines, I apologize for the, for people listening outside central Iowa, you know, um, I appreciate you do guys listening, you know, we always kind of have to kind of think of what we're doing kind of within the lens of where we're at. And Des Moines, you know, I think we, we're pretty lucky we've been shielded largely from the onslaught, you know, terrible, terrible uh, antibiotic resistance for the most part. I always kind of put my, you know, cross my fingers behind my back when I tell my students that, you know, we rarely see super duper bad resistant carbapenemase resistant organisms. And we have seen an increase in, in ESBLs in the last 10 years, but it's still been way, way in the minority. You know, we've been pretty lucky here. So I'd like to keep it that way. So I guess I, my next question for you, John, is, is would such intervention work in Des Moines or I guess more, more locally, since you and I might have some, some influence on getting it done in the Unity Point system, which is a huge system, and is it needed, in your opinion? Well, uh, to answer your last question first, yes. I, I sincerely believe it's needed. Um, I spent uh, quite a few years in practice uh, with a large group here in Des Moines and uh, consider them among my closest friends and colleagues. And yet, even then, I would see physicians that I respected prescribing, in my opinion, too many antibiotics for insufficient justification. I, I honestly think it's needed. Uh, in addition to the generation of resistant bugs, of course, I worry about the, uh, the, the exposure to potential adverse drug reactions, uh, the fact that it's just a, an economic burden on, on our healthcare system. So Absolutely. I think there's a lot of benefit if we can reduce the unnecessary prescription. Now, in defense of my colleagues, um, I will say that one of the hardest jobs in the world is to be a primary care physician uh, and, you know, meet your patient's needs, practice the highest quality medicine that you can, but face what seems like an endless um, <laughs> demand. Uh, and, and you're asked to see these patients in 10 or 15 minutes. You want the patient to leave satisfied. To a certain extent, you're being scored on patient satisfaction. And you can just see how all of these factors contribute to the ease of, this is going to date me, reaching for your prescription pad or clicking uh, on your keypad right. to 
generate an antibiotic prescription. It's, it's just far too easy. And it's easier to do that than to educate the patient or potentially see them leave uh, unsatisfied. Right. No, I agree with you entirely. And that, that's always been the issue. I mean, you know, I've heard it said from many of your colleagues and, and other physicians, I know that in the end, when you're seeing 30 patients a day, it takes me, it, you know, it's going to take me 15 minutes to sit down and explain why an antibiotic isn't a good idea. And, you know, that there are harms associated with the antibiotics, et cetera, et cetera. And I, and I already got three other patients waiting for me and they're already mad at me. And, and, you know, and so it's like, look, you know, let's give them a Z pack and, you know, it's probably not going to hurt them and, and things along those lines. I used to joke and when a colleague, of both uh, uh, John and I and a friend of both of ours is Dan Allen, who's a uh, chief medical officer, I believe now, of, of the clinics for Unity Point. I used to joke with him that I would love to do a study at one of the West Des Moines or one of the other large clinics with my internist and randomly in the exam rooms randomly have a picture of a gigantic mega colon, right? You know, a colon that looks like it's just going to pop from C. diff with all the yellow plaques in it and just put like a cloth over it. And then, you know, rather than taking 20 minutes to explain, you know, what's going on saying, okay, well, I could give you the Z pack, but your colon might look like this. <laughs> <laughs> and just say, and just, and just, you know, it, would that be enough for people to go, oh, okay, never mind. I'll, I'll, I'll tough this through. Can I have some cough syrup? You know, sort of thing. You know? And I don't know. I, yeah, that's, that's, that's been a joke of mine for years and years. And, and Dan and I used to joke about that. So, you know, to that point, though, and this, this was a long time ago, but a very wise physician who was one of my mentors advised me that one of the things you can do is rather than hand them a prescription for a Z-Pack or at the time Cipro, right. uh, you could also write out on that prescription the conservative measures to treat that viral infection. And you know, then they walk out with a prescription in hand. It's not an antibiotic right. and it's not going to satisfy everybody, but it does give people something that they walk out of there with in their hand uh, that will make a lot bigger difference than any antibiotic you could give them. Absolutely. So do you have any, and, and so, I mean, you, I know you, and again, you're now, as you pointed out, you know, kind of, kind of, you know, at having a lot of these system level conversations. And of course the last year it's been, I'm sure COVID, 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 but I mean, you know, before then and after then, you know, do you think any other ideas would, would help for outpatient stewardship initiatives? Yes. You know, and actually I, a few moments ago, I described this intervention as low intensity. That's what I would consider it. Um, I think that we could depend principally upon two things. Uh, one is education, and, and that means education of the physician primarily, uh, but also the patient, you know, and finding strategies in which we can condense that education into a shorter period. Um, but the other part is to, frankly, have more transparency. Uh, we've never been very good at that in the medical profession. And, you know, the nuclear bomb here, Jeff, is to say, we're going to post everybody's prescribing data so that anybody, even a lay consumer, could go right, to a certain right. website and see how many antibiotic prescriptions is my... Now, that could have the reverse <laughs> effect, as I think about it. Somebody may say, gosh, I can go to this doctor and get what I need. But doctors by nature are extremely competitive. Uh, and, you know, even a more limited approach, I've seen this done, for example, with diabetes management, uh, ensuring that some of the uh, quality measures are met. When, when that physician sees that he or she is ranked, you know, 11th out of 12 physicians, uh, they, they often do something about it. Uh, and they don't have to see who the other physicians are. They can just see where they rank in their group or some community of peers 
Uh, and I think that can really make a difference. At the very least, I would like to see something along these lines where perhaps we identify those that are heavy prescribers, but give them quarterly updates, not just one letter. It's, it's easy to ignore one letter. But if I get a, an update every three months, I start to pay attention. Uh, and, and to take it one step further, uh, I'm involved, I'm on the board for the Iowa Healthcare Collaborative. And one of the areas in which we're interested is uh, the overprescription of narcotics. Right. And we're in a partnership with CMS to identify those that are heavy prescribers in, in a region, not just our state. And um, we've engaged in a, in a campaign with them where they receive letters from us. They receive education from us. We offer mentoring with experts in the management of chronic pain to help them bring their practices under better control. And as you might expect, there's a certain percentage that just tell us to go pound sand. You know, <laughs> they're, they're not interested. But there's the percentage that really are. So I think we could take some of those lessons and apply that to this community. Then it just becomes a matter of, uh, how much are we willing to invest in the infrastructure to do that? I've often wondered if I wouldn't ask our current infectious disease group to do one more thing because I think they'll run screaming from the room and ask for, you know, Adam or Haldol. <laughs> but, but, but yeah, I mean, I've often wondered we could certainly have some sort of mentoring program as well in the unity point system from an antibiotic system. So yeah, no, I think those are great ideas. Well, I really appreciate your time, John, and I appreciate your insight. And I hope we can have you on again talking about other things because I, I do appreciate your breadth of insight in a wide number of areas of medicine. So thank you for joining us. Jeff, it's been a delight. I've enjoyed it. If I could just say one more thing, I'd just like to give great credit to the multidisciplinary approach that we're using in the hospital with pharmacists and nurses working with our ID docs. If we could do the same thing in the ambulatory setting, I think we'd achieve great ends. I agree. And, and fortunately, you know, for far sighting, uh, you know, administrators, physicians like you, Dan, other people, I think we've, we're way ahead of the curve in Unity Point. I'm, I'm very proud of that. So, well, thank you again, John. I appreciate you taking the time. Thanks to all of you listening. I think what this, we kind of walk away from this is that you don't have to hit people over the head with a hammer. I think that uh, John has pointed out that sometimes all it takes is a little reminder for people to help get their prescribing patterns kind of where they probably should be. And, and those are things I think a lot of health systems, big and small, can really take a look at. So, Thank you again for listening. Um, again, please hit that like button where you uh, get your podcast. Subscribe to us if you haven't. And again, head over to CE Impact and get CE for just hearing uh, me blabber on for 20 or 30 minutes a week. That's about the simplest CE you can possibly get. So we will see you next week. Thanks for listening again. And remember, time flies. I don't know where it's going, but the most important day is today. We'll see you next week. Thanks for listening in. Check out the CE for this podcast at ceimpact.com or download the Pharmacy Network app by searching CE Impact in your app store and join the Game Changers Podcast Academy. Happy learning!